Welcome everybody. Let's open with prayer. Psalm 119, probably these days this is uh, probably the, the most well-known part of Psalm 119. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. We're severely afflicted in temptations and struggling to live this life of faith. And so we pray that you would give us life, O Lord, according to your word, that word of forgiveness and life and peace. Accept our free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach us your rules. We hold our life in our, our hand continually, but we do not forget your law. The wicked have laid snares for us, but we do not stray from your precepts. We remain faithful to your truth and to your word. Your testimonies are our heritage forever. The stories of your salvation and your mighty deeds of the past, that's our inheritance, for they are the joy of our heart. We incline our heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Amen. This passage uh, that uh, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Um, you know, when we think about living in a relationship with God, you know, there is this sense of, of God comes to us, he speaks to us, but there's also a, a path and a way in which we live. And sometimes people will say that, you know, um, we Christians are more concerned about knowing the word than we are about living it. The, the two actually go hand in hand. Um, you know, in, in John chapter 5, verse 39, uh, this is that passage, I've cited it a few times in here, where Jesus says, you know, you search the scriptures, but they speak of me. So wherever we're at in the, the scriptures, th this is about Jesus. You know, there's this idea out there that all we got to do is, you know, live like Jesus. Well, we, when we read the Old Testament, we're reading about Jesus. We're learning from him. We're learning about his, you know, law and his gospel and, and all these aspects of our lives of faith. And uh, in Acts 10, verses 39 to 41, um, sorry, I should have had this open beforehand. Um, this is part of our uh, first reading for today, uh, where, where Peter has proclaimed Jesus uh, to Cornelius and to his household. It, it says this, We are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So we really do need the scriptures uh, because the scriptures are what reveal Jesus to us. Um, whether it's the prophets of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, whether it's the Psalms, whether it is the, uh, the Gospels, which tend to be sometimes preferred, 
or the teaching of the apostles themselves. Because this is the task for which they were appointed, to be Jesus' witnesses, to testify that he is the one that, that God uh, was sent to, uh, to raise, or sent to judge the living and the dead. So the scriptures reveal this path that we're to follow, this way of life that is connected to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Um, so we can't follow Jesus without the Bible. You know, we, we need this message. We need to hear this. And, and when I say the Bible, I mean Genesis through Revelation. It's all relevant to the life of faith. So this is the tool that God has given to us to proclaim law and gospel, to convict us of our sin, but also to reveal our Savior. Uh, it's the tool that God uses to create faith in us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, the word delivers forgiveness to us. It's one of the means of grace. Uh, and when we're there, where there is forgiveness of sins, there's also life, of salva life and salvation. And then it also guides us into the sanctified life. That part that says, I want to live like Jesus does, that, that comes from being connected to Jesus in the word. Um, so just some, some thoughts as we get started here. We're about halfway through Romans chapter 4. And Romans chapter 4 begins... Um, I can speak. Sorry. Hold on. Give me some, a little more coffee. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For... If it, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This talk about uh, the law and, and the righteousness of God, it, it, it made me think about how we often talk about how these two things interplay um, we, we in the Lutheran Church often speak about law and gospel. Uh, in fact, um, just recently, uh, the staff went through a very large book written by uh, the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, C.F.W. Walther, that is actually just called The Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel. And uh, this is one of the, uh, the important, significant ways that Lutherans talk about the scriptures. That when we look at the scriptures, we see uh, that God is giving us two words, two uh, types of messages. Uh, one is the law, which reveals our sin and, and it condemns us for our sin and it accuses us in our sin. And then the other is the gospel, which is the account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Everything that has to do with God forgiving our sins, whether that is in the Hebrew Old Testament or whether it's in the Greek New Testament, all of it, you know, I think that when I was a kid, I thought, you know, the Old Testament is law because you got the Ten Commandments there. The New Testament is the gospel. But really, the whole of the scriptures, uh, th this is all throughout there. And one of, the, uh, one of the challenges that we have as Christians is to be taught by the Spirit to recognize when God is speaking to us through the law or whether he's speaking to us through the gospel. And 
sometimes the way that we talk about this is that uh, God has commands, but he also has promises. And I, I, I see some of this interwoven in the way that, that uh, Paul is writing in this letter. Sometimes he talks about the law, sometimes he talks about commands, sometimes he talks about promises, sometimes he talks about the gospel. The law and the commands are the same thing. The gospel and God's promises, the same thing. And, uh, and when we speak about these things, um, you know, we recognize that God has two words for us. You know, this, this, this idea that he uh, has expectations and that his wrath comes against our sin, but he also has his love and his mercy and his grace, and he delivers that to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. So, He's saying here that the law does not reveal the righteousness of God that comes through faith. And to get at what the law actually does, I went to a document that Martin Luther wrote called the Small Cold Articles and pulled some of this out of this to help us to understand what the law does. So the law was given by God first to restrain sin by threats of the dread of punishment and by the promise and offer of grace and bed and benefit. So the idea here is that when, when God gave the law, that there was a threat of punishment that kind of keeps you going in the right direction. Have you ever noticed when you're driving down I-80, um, I know none of you would ever do this, but you know, you say you're you know, 10 over the speed limit, and you see in the divider there, the highway patrolman. Have you ever noticed how the traffic slows way down. I've actually noticed, you know, the speed limit is 70 on the turnpike, right? I've noticed that people who are going 70 will slow down to 65 when they pass that patrolman. I'm like, you were going the speed limit. What's the problem with you? There is a threat there. And a lot of times we obey the law because of that threat, because of fear. We don't want to take it. You know, and, and the law actually does that. And if we obey the law, even if it's through fear, is that a good thing? Did you obey the law? Yeah. You know, and so there is that sense of it. But in that threat, there's a discomfort too. And when we're dealing with God's law, the threat not only you know, says, you, you better behave yourself, you better be good, it starts to point us in the direction of we need a different uh, remedy other than just me being good because I'm falling short of this left and right. And it's pointing us to the gospel to say, this is where you actually find relief. So when the law acts in this threatening way, People respond to it in a couple of different ways. Sometimes people, they act as unrestrained sinners. Um, there are people who blow right by those police officers and, and I, I know that often they regret it. I drove by a police officer the other day on the turnpike. I was going 75 in the 70 and my heart was like And of course he just sat there and did nothing because there are other people going a lot faster, driving a lot more dangerously. Um, but there, there's something about that, that, you know, I'm going to, to you know, do what I want to do. And some people seem to have this attitude in them, and they're, they're, they're unrestrained. They become kind of like a law unto themselves, and they, they reject any kind of an external standard of righteousness. 
and they become a law unto themselves. I'll do what I want to do because that's what I want to do. And that's part of our sinful, broken nature. Some people will become blind and arrogant as they're dealing with the law, though. They will look at the law and say, look at all the things that I've done. They'll even say, you know, if you try to you know, look at the good versus the bad, I'm sure that my good side is better than the, the, the bad. And, uh, and so they think that they've kept the law, but in reality, they're hypocrites because their righteousness is going to fall short of that perfect standard that God has. Those are two extremes that people tend to operate from. We sinners tend to be somewhere on a continuum between those points, just kind of open and utter rebellion and kind of secure, I'm doing okay. Uh, Self-righteousness is uh, the word for that. And, and as God deals with us, he, he threatens all of those forms of, uh, of well, they're both types of self-righteousness, whether, why can't I turn pages today? Good grief. Um, whether it is the uh, righteousness that says I am a law unto myself or a righteousness that says, you know, I'm, I'm doing good enough. The other thing that the law does, the chief office or the force of the law is to reveal original sin with all its fault. Notice, it reveals original sin. And this is something that is often lacking in our conversation when we talk about sin and grace because we make sin about uh, the things that I do. You know, and it becomes about being good or being bad. Well, if I'm, if I'm a sinner, that means I'm bad and I'm doing bad things and I want to be good and do good things. But the reality is that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're born into uh, this, this broken condition. Uh, we're, we're born into a, a state where we, we're not able to not sin. That, that idea is, well, it's utterly rejected in our society and in American Christendom. You know, the idea is that, you know, within a lot of American evangelicalism is that you're going to hear the word and you're going to choose to follow Jesus. The picture that the Bible gives is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you need to be raised from that death in order to follow Jesus. There is no, there is no choosing. You know, the only choices that we make from our free will are sin. It's only when the Holy Spirit is at work in us that we start to make those choices that are pleasing to God. This is another form of that righteousness of God that we've been talking about in, in the book of Romans. On the one hand, we talk about righteousness in a civic sense, doing good to our, our neighbors. Then there's the righteousness that's declared by faith. And when we live in that righteousness that's declared by faith, sometimes we're going to do things that God actually wants us to do. But the fact of the matter is, they're still going to be tainted by our sin. And so your standing before God still goes back to the righteousness that was won or and received by faith. Does that make sense? 
so that from first to last, the whole relationship with God, it's rooted in faith and trust in what Jesus has done for us. Now, in verse 14, the, the English Standard Version translates verse 14 as, for if the adherents of the law um, who are, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. The Greek is a little bit more terse than that. Um, so anytime you're translating it, you, you look at how do I communicate the idea? And, and so sometimes, you know, you gotta, you gotta fill things in. Even in my translation, there's no, there's no verb in this first part. That's a pretty common thing uh, in, in Greek that they leave out the verb to be and you just assume it. So I, I translated it this way. For if the heirs are from the law, faith, it, faith has been made invalid and the promise has become useless. For if the heirs are from the law, faith has been made invalid and the promise has become useless. Both the verbs regarding being null and void are perfect passives. This is something that's just being done to it. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, the gifts that God gives uh, through faith and the promises that, that he has given to us, if, if it gets connected back to the law, it's like you, you just cut all the power out of them. You know, that's, that's what it means to be null and void. And this takes us back to chapter 4, verse 4 where it says, now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. We get that, right? We go to work, we expect to be paid. You know, it's, it's not you know, a gift, it is, it's a contract, it's an agreement. And if righteousness comes by the things that we do, if we earn this somehow, it's no longer grace. So earning righteousness is opposed to the whole idea of an inheritance. And that's what God is giving to us, is an inheritance. That, that gift that comes after someone dies. And in this case, the someone who dies is Jesus, with the added benefit of he has risen from the dead, so that we can enjoy him still and live in his blessings and benefits. So if faith and the promise are null and void, or invalid and useless, what are we left with? works. If, if faith is taken away, if God's promises are taken away, all you can be left with is the law. You're on your own. Good luck. Do your best. And we already know that, you know, our best isn't good enough. You know, these have been shown to be sufficient insufficient for the righteousness before God. And that's why in the next verse, it, he says very flatly, the law brings wrath. That word brings, uh, the, 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 verb, the verb has a sense of working at something. It, it, I like to translate it produce. The law produces wrath. It's a nuance. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying that their translation is wrong or, or whatever. Um, but if God's word is a lamp and a light, the law shows us where we fall short. 
The law is the thing that's going to say, look, this, these are the things you haven't done. These are the things that you have done that you shouldn't have. Uh, the Latin phrase that is thrown around a lot is lex semper accusat, uh, the law always accuses. And that's an, an important axiom when we're dealing with the law. You know, when we start talking about law and gospel, the law is always accusing anytime we interact with it. So go back to your, your confirmation class and remember those, those three uses of the law? Does that sound vaguely familiar? That the law acts as a, a curb, a mirror, and a guide? So when, uh, when God, first of all, three uses of the law, who's using the law? God is, yeah. This is something that uh, I think that sometimes we get a little confused about. You know, I'm using the law. Mm -mm. God's using the law in whichever way he chooses in our lives. So sometimes the law acts as a curb. You know, it says, you know, stop here. Um, have you ever, like, hit the curb and, like, jump it and then you're, like, stuck? <laughs> I went to a football game a few years ago. Obviously, it wasn't last year. It was a year before. And this poor... I, I do parking for, for Stowe. Um, it's connected to the speech and debate. And, you know, it gets points for my daughter. And, and you know, whatever. And uh, I'm parking and people and, you know, pointing out where to go. And this poor kid, her dad is sitting in the passenger seat. And she pulls in and... I'm thinking it had to be a stick shift because all of a sudden the thing just ran forward on her. Boom! You know, and, and she is just white as a sheet. And the thing stalls. And, and I just see the moment where the dad's like, get out. I'm not saying that those are good parenting moments. Uh, you know, it's probably better to stay calm and, you know, okay, sweetie, we're going to back this out. We're going to figure it out. But she had done it good. And uh, she was a band member. And she had to get out and get up to the, uh, the school to get into band. And he was fussing with that. The curb says, stop. And sometimes God's law says, stop. And when we go over it, there are bad consequences. Things happen uh, that are damaging. Uh, and so that, that's, that's the use as a curb. And this is one of the ways that God accuses us. You, you, you look, look at the damage in your life. Look at what's going on. You went too far. You know, this pain that you are experiencing is connected back to the fact that you jumped the curb. Mirror is often where we think about God accusing. Um, the mirror idea is that when you look in a mirror, you see what's actually there. You know, so, uh, you know, if you got a little salad in your teeth, uh, you know, heaven forbid you got a little bit of a booger in your nose, the mirror shows what's going on there. And the law acts in that way, in, in that, you know, as we stand there in front of God's word, it says, you know, th this is what's wrong. Not just cosmetically, though. It gets right into the heart and says, these are the things that are happening inside of you that uh, do not live up to God's righteousness, and it accuses us. And then the third use of the law is a guide. 
you know, that as we live in faith, it's going to show us the way that we should go. Now, I'm in a room with some very devout, wonderful saints. And God's word is telling you where to go and you generally live in obedience, but does God's word ever tell you to do things and you're like, no, thank you, I would rather do. Yeah. So even when, like the psalmist, when we say, I love your law, Lord, there are still times where we uh, are accused by that law for not living according to it. Even though we say, you know, yep, yep, I'm, I trust this, I believe this is right, you know, but I don't do it, even though I love it. And, and so these different ways that God interacts with us with the law, it's constantly accusing us and showing us where we fall short of the law in order that we would desire the gospel. And he goes on, he says, where there is no law, neither is there transgression. If there was no law, there'd be no accusation against us, so there would be no, no going across the line. That's what transgression means. You know, that you go across, you go too far, you jump the curb. You know, there, there'd be no line to overstep. But the law is there. And it is real. And it still, it still applies. So in, in Romans 2, verse 15, um, Paul is talking about people who seek to show their righteousness uh, by their deeds and people who have never heard the law. And he says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, so even if you've never heard God's law, it's written on our hearts and it's doing this work of accusing us. And Jesus speaks of the law being something that's real and, and at work in our lives. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These are people who excel that outwardly keeping the law. And he says, unless you're better than them, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What part of this sounds like the law doesn't matter anymore? He fulfilled it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't apply. It means he's brought it to its fullest sense. That he has done all the things that are necessary, but that doesn't mean it's abolished. The law constantly accuses. It constantly condemns. And this is part of our life. And that's why we got to get into verse 16 to see what God has done about this. That's why it depends on faith. So Jesus fulfills the law, but that doesn't mean that the law doesn't apply to us at all anymore. 
It changes our relationship with it in that we live in his forgiveness that was received by faith. So 16 and 17, he says, and that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So, I'm going to retranslate verse 16. Because of this, it is from faith, so that it is according to grace, so that it is to be a secure a firm, a reliable, a certain, a trustworthy promise to all the seed. Because the law does what the law does, God wants the promise to be rock solid and reliable. He wants us to have no confidence in the law, but our confidence before him to be completely and totally rooted in Jesus and in his promise. So when it says, uh, because of this, it is, it is the righteousness of God. Because of this, the righteousness of God is from faith, so that the righteousness of God is according to grace, so that the righteousness of God is a secure promise to all the seed. It's from faith according to God's grace. And that word grace, it is, it's, it's related to the word gift. Um, in fact, sometimes, you know, the word grace is charis and the word um, for gift is kara. You know, I mean, they're just obviously connected uh, in the way that they sound. And one of the things that, that I want you to notice is how this passage connects the Jews and the Gentiles. Because there's this sense of, you know, well, the Jews have the promises and, and the Gentiles are outside of the promises. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, can they believe in Jesus and, and, and all of these things and have the love and the forgiveness of God? That was a major controversy in the early church. This is an important theme throughout Paul's letters. And the gospel becomes the connecting point for the Jews and the Gentiles. The hope that God gives a righteousness, a forgiveness that comes by faith, it becomes the commonality. So that the gospel connects us across ethnicity. It connects across social status. It connects across gender uh, and age. It connects across the types of sin that we favor. Because ultimately our hope is in Jesus, whether you're Jew or Gentile. No matter what your, your, your skin color is, no matter what your socioeconomic background is, no matter what your gender is, no matter whether you're confused about your gender, no matter you know, any of these things, 
Your hope of a righteousness before God is about who Jesus is and what, what he has done. So in this connecting point of the gospel, then Abraham becomes the father of us all. He is the one who leads the way. We walk in his footsteps. And so it puts us in, in, in the presence of God, literally in the sight and judgment of God, who is the one who, who gives life to the dead. You know, th this, is, this is actually the miracle of conversion, that God gives life to the dead. Because, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, sometimes people, you know, they, they look in their, their, at uh, the Gospels and they, they say, oh, the miracles. And, and they look at all these incredible things that Jesus did. And there's that passage, and I'm blanking on where it's at, where Jesus says, you know, you will do even greater things. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about bringing the Gospel that raises the dead, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to life in Christ. This is what's happening in baptism. You know, if, if we have this original sin in us and we're, we're, in essence, we're born dead. And then in baptism, the Holy Spirit does his work to make us alive and to give us faith. And so God is the one who gives life to the dead. And I really like this next phrase where he says that God is the one who calls the not being things as being things. Things that are not as though they are. Which takes my mind right back to Genesis chapter 1. Where God says, let there be, and then there is. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God is God because he created all things. Did anybody listen to uh, the, the Lutheran Hour this morning, by any chance? Really, uh, really good sermon uh, on, uh, is that? Is it just raining that hard, or is that snow? Ugh. Because that has everything to do with our Bible study. Ugh. <laughs> Sorry, distracting. Um, oh, uh, Lutheran Hour Ministry, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the sermon on, on Jonah, he just wrapped up a series on Jonah. And... Um, Remember, when Jonah, uh, he's running away from God because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, he, because he, does not want to, he doesn't want God to save them. It's essentially what, what, he's, what he's doing. And uh, he's on the boat, and you know, the ship is being tossed because God is hurling the storm at the sea, and it, it, it's impossible. And they ask him, you know, why is this happening? And he's like, it's me. Who are you? What do you do? I serve the God who created the earth and the sea and everything in them. And as you read all throughout the, 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 the Hebrew scriptures, God is God because he created. And that's kind of that first point of connection uh, with people. He calls things as not being as being. 
And as he speaks to you, and we're going to hit this again in a little bit, as he speaks to you, you know your unrighteousness. And he says, you're righteous. The one who calls things that don't exist into existence creates reality. And the reality that he has spoken on you is that you are righteous through faith in Jesus. Paul continues talking about Abraham here. He says, In hope he hoped against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I got to teach one time about Abraham, and uh, there was a, a lady in the, in the group who was 99 years old, and we were talking about, you know, becoming a parent at 99, and, and I looked at her and I said, how would you like to be a parent right now? And she, I can't even begin to in, uh, imitate the, the cackling laugh that came out of her in that moment. You know, that's why they named him Isaac, right? Because that means laughter. You know, I mean, the whole idea is laughable. You know, so, you know, Abraham and, and, and Sarah, they're both beyond hope. You know, as far as you know, having children is con concerned. But in this passage, it says, you know, that Abraham, despite the fact that he was beyond hope, on the basis of hope, believed that he was about to become the father of many nations because of what he had been told. So in a worldly sense, Abraham and Sarah, there's no hope for them to become parents, let alone, you know, to have nations come from them. But on the basis of the promise, on the basis of the gospel, the basis of the word, on the basis of what he had been told, Abraham had hope. But his hope is not in himself. It's in who God is. It's in what God has done. So you know, in verse 20, it says he gave glory to God. So his focus becomes on, if this is going to happen, God's going to do it. And so God's promise injects hope into the hopelessness of his situation. And the same is true for us. When we think about our standing before God, if we want to make it about the things that we do, the situation is hopeless. But the promise injects hope that despite my inability to bring this about, God is the one who's going to do it. And so then our focus goes to him. And because Abraham's focus is on him, he's fully convinced. He is completely certain. He's fully assured that he has promised, that he who has promised is powerful. He is strong. And he's able to do what he said he would do. So when we think about God's power, in this context, God's power is intended to be a comfort to us. And I think that this is, that as people who have been redeemed in Christ, that when we deal with God's power, that that's, that, that, that's where we rightly go. That God's power, which can be absolutely terrifying, is actually a comfort. 
that his power is used on our behalf. And I think we have a neat example of that in Psalm 145. And if you've got a Bible, you know, if you would turn there. Psalm 145 is, uh, it's the last psalm before we get into the, the Alleluia Psalms. Um, psalm 146, 47, 48, 49, and 50, they all begin with the word Hallelujah, which is translated praise the Lord. Uh, so you're, you're at a kind of a turning point. And let's take a look at this. Uh, the psalmist starts out, he says, well, David starts out, he says, I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And then he starts talking about the greatness of the Lord. And then in verse 4, one generation will commend your works to another. We're going to talk about the things that God has done. We're going to declare your mighty acts. Uh, we're going to talk about the glorious splendor of his majesty, uh, his wonderful works. That's going to be the, the basis of our meditation, the things that, that's going to rattle around in our mind and all these incredible, amazing things that God has done and the way that he's exerted his power in this world. They will speak of your might, of your awesome deeds. You will declare your greatness. They'll pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. He comes to that by meditating on the powerful things that God has done. And he's back to, your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. You know, he's talking about his creation here. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They're going to make known uh, to the children of man your mighty deeds. And over and over again, he, he comes back to this. Even you know, the, in verse 15, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. That, that, that all connects back to God's power and, and his goodness. And all of it is driving him to this place of trust, this place of comfort, this place of hope. Uh, so that in the end, he says, you know, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Because he's experienced God's goodness through the exertion of God's power uh, in his life to, to bring his goodness to bear on him. So when, when we deal with God, there is this assurance that comes that if God has said it, he's able to do it. He has promised it, he will bring it about. And then Paul continues in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because his eyes were on God. Because he was trusting that God could do what God promised. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
Uh, again, when it says it was counted, I like to translate that credited, um, uh, you know, this, this, that this is God's judgment. That he's the one um, who says, you know, let there be, and what he says is, you are righteous. That's his judgment on you. So this word is for, for you also. And the sense here is of an action resulting from a divine decree. And because it is from a d divine degree that has a high degree of certainty, he is destined to, he must, he certainly will be credited as righteous. And I did a little bit of retranslating on verses 24 and 25 here. Um, I translated it like this, that... Uh, if you look at verse 24, it starts out, but for ours also, that this, this righteousness is, is counted to us as well. But also for us, those who will certainly be reckoned as righteous to those believing upon the one who raised Jesus from, Jesus our Lord from the dead. To those believing upon the one who raised Jesus. Our faith is in the one who raised Jesus. You know, and he's pointing us back to the Father here. Um, who raised him from the dead. Jesus who was handed over, who was betrayed uh, on account of our trespasses and raised on account of our righteousness. So I spent some time talking about how God, uh, the creator, speaks and reality happens. And, uh, and as he speaks into our lives, what he speaks is, though your works show unrighteousness, um, he speaks righteousness into us, and that becomes our reality. But notice that here, Paul um, points not to the authority of the fact that God created all things, but the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. And this is a shift that takes place for us. When you read through the Old Testament, God is God because he created all things. After Jesus, God is God because he raised Jesus from the dead. That's the mark. That's the sign of, of who he is and why he's the one that, that we are to worship. So this is actually the starting point of our faith the resurrection and of course the preceding death because you can't have a resurrection without the death but this this is the thing so in, in first corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 through 4 paul says i delivered to you as of first importance well what's the first most important thing paul christ suffered and died for our sins god raised him from the dead on the third day that that's central to everything and if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then, then all of this is pointless. You know, so when, when you look at all the religions of the world, this is one of the things that's kind of unique about us in Christianity. You know, if Jesus isn't raised, we kind of have to walk away. If they can produce the body, we kind of have to go... Well, I guess that wasn't true. 
Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So what we literally do is, is we go from the point of Jesus' resurrection, and we kind of work our way backwards. You know, why do we believe this, that, or the other thing? We believe it because Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who is the risen one, and therefore he speaks authoritatively into our lives regarding uh, the forgiveness and salvation, as well as regarding the scriptures, the law, and, and, and all those other aspects of the life of faith. Now, there is a neat wordplay in verse 25 that does not really come across uh, in the English. Uh, verse 25 says who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Um, the, the, it's the same word that, that, that for our uh, is the same word in the, uh, the Greek uh, on both ends of this. So Jesus was handed over. He was betrayed on account of our trespasses, for our trespasses. Uh, but he was raised on account of or for our righteousness. In the first statement, our trespasses are the cause of Jesus being handed over. They're the cause of him being betrayed. And in the second, uh, Jesus' resurrection becomes the cause of our resurrection. So there's kind of a, a cause, effect, effect, cause thing going on there. Um, which I think is worth noting when we read the scriptures that um, this is literature. It's holy. It's sacred, it's true, but it wasn't written in a way to just be, you know, dull. And, uh, you know, Paul was a, a master of rhetoric, you know, and a great preacher. So you can find these things in, in his, uh, his letters sometimes, in the way that he puts things together. Um, these little uh, word games, I guess, is what you would call that. So, I don't know, any... any questions or anything else that needs to be brought up before uh, we close with prayer? Then let's pray. Yeah, yeah, yeah the homework is pretty easy this week. You're welcome. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here. We pray that you would bless us to live in your righteousness, the righteousness that's declared, the righteousness that is promised. And we ask, Lord, that you would guide us uh, to live in that so that we have a right relationship with your law, so that we have a right relationship uh, with our, our hope in Jesus. And we lift these things in his name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.